Good evening, everybody. Um, as David just told you, I lead an apologetics ministry. How many of you do not know what that is? Oh, really? Okay. Most, I'm, I'm usually, usually it's like most hands. Almost nobody has any idea what I'm talking about when I, when I say I do apologetics. So basically, it's explaining why you believe what you believe. Like, what's, is there any reason to believe in this Christian stuff at all? Um, like, for example, what we're talking about tonight in March, as we're getting ready for Easter, is the resurrection of Jesus. And the question is, did it actually happen? And how can you know that? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or useless because you're still in your sins. So as Christians, we're committed to certain things like that there's a God. Because if there's not a God, then we should all just go home now. We're just wasting our time. Um, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is, is a waste of time, and we should perhaps find another religion. Um, and if you look two verses later in 1 Corinthians, there's no point in even following it like for just because it makes you a better person. Paul said, if we have hope in this life only in Christ, then we are of all men most to be pitied. So we really should find something else to do if this isn't true. So what I want to do is take a look at some historical reasons to think that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide this into three parts. We're going to first look at sources. So where do, where do we go for information about this? We're trying to make a case for an event that supposedly happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world before there were video cameras and things. So how can we know something like that happened? Where do we go for, to look for evidence? And after that, we're going to move into the section of facts. We're going to try to come up with some basic things that we can say that any, any hypothesis, any way of explaining uh, these events must deal with these facts. We're not going to go very many. We're only going to do three. But they're going to be very, very solid ones so that any attempt to explain it must explain those facts. And if it can't, then we can throw it out. And finally, we're going to go through some different different hypotheses like uh, that Jesus just appeared to die or the disciples stole the body or, or things like that. Um, and I'm going to stop after each one of these sections, after the sources, facts, and hypotheses, and we're going to have a chance for Q&A. So if you have a question on the sources, you're not going to have to wait all the way till the very end to get that answered. We're going to go ahead and do that immediately, and then we'll move on afterward. Everybody good? Cool. Sources. I'm going to start with number four at the bottom. We're doing these in reverse order because the best ones are up at the top. Sources outside the Bible. There are places in ancient history that talk about Christianity, such as Josephus or Tacitus or Pliny the Younger. There are several places that do this. But for the most part, Christianity wasn't really discussed by secular authors until much later because until it was actually a big thing, they had no reason to write about it. I mean, it didn't even reach Rome for you know, a couple of decades, so why would Roman authors be writing about something that they'd never even heard about? So we can't expect to find a whole lot about the Christianity and secular authors in the first century. Much later, few sources in the first century, uh, primarily they just confirm things that we've already uh, have already been written about by other sources. So just to let you know why I'm not spending a lot of time on that, that's why, because it's not going to really add anything. It can help to confirm it, but it's not going to add anything. Uh, the third one up are the Gospels and Acts. The Gospels are, are really, really good sources. The problem is there are a lot of people today who have spent too much time on the Internet and not enough time reading books and they don't understand that the Gospels are actually good sources. Uh, most, most New Testament scholars use the Gospels all the time, and when I say most, uh, most New Testament scholars don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Um, that's actually a surprising thing um, to most people. I'm, I'm doing a Ph.D. in New Testament. That's the way it is. I, I still, for the life of me, don't know why you would go into New Testament studies if you don't believe in Christianity. That's what people do. I, I guess they have nothing better to do, and they just needed to pick something in history, so they do. But that's how it is. Um, so you can use the Gospels for getting information about the resurrection, and they are good sources. 
the problem is going to be in discussing with someone, how bogged down do you want to get in, well, this, you know, Matthew says this, but Luke says this, and then John says this, and Mark says this, and then um, you run into that a little bit with Acts, but not as much. Um, it's simply a question of whether you want to deal with gospel contradictions. They're not contradictions, but people call them that. Do you want to deal with that or not? So what I'm proposing is we just set that aside just to make the conversation easier, not because there's anything wrong with them, just to make it easier so that they're not going to have anything to you know, run you off on rabbit trails forever. You don't actually get to talk about the resurrection because you're busy dealing with gospels supposedly contradicting each other. So what I want to focus most of the time on are the top two things, uncontested letters of Paul and early creeds. So if we're looking for information about the resurrection, ideally you're going to want a few things. You're going to want information that's as close to the actual events as possible, right? Because if somebody wrote a book last year, they probably didn't have much access to eyewitnesses because it's been a while and everybody's probably dead. Um, They're probably getting their information not second or third or fourth or fifth hand. It's, it's, It's a lot more than that. You ideally want things very, very close to the actual events. You want things to be recorded by multiple sources. You want them to be independent of each other. You don't want them to be collaborating, because if they're collaborating, then it's really just one source. It's not many sources. So what we're looking for are um, close to the event, independent, eyewitness if possible, and you find more of that in the first two than you do in the later ones. At least that's provable. Specifically, I want to po- point out something on the dates. Um, if we're looking at dates when the New Testament books and epistles were written, you find that these first two are, are way, way earlier than everything else. So let's say um, we'll use this room as like a big timeline. And the crucifixion of Jesus is that wall. And this wall is, let's say, AD 100. According to critical scholars, and you're not going you can, to, you can argue for earlier dates, but then that's one more step, and that's the same reason we're not going to the Gospels. Most New Testament scholars would say the Gospel of John was about here, about 95 AD. Matthew and Luke are going to be somewhere in this range, maybe 80, 85. There's, there's debate on which came first. It's about the same. Um, Acts would be a little after. That's like second Luke. Um, so Matthew and Luke are going to be here. You'll find Mark probably about here. So first gospel, most likely, about 80, 70. So even if you go with this, though, it's really only 40 years after the death of Jesus. Um, so honestly, that's not that bad because people do live for more than 40 years. So you can still have people around who were there originally and knew what was going on. So if, if you forget everything else tonight, remember, remember this, if, if you need to go to a gospel and you need to make a, a point about how we can trust what's in the new Testament, Mark was written within the lifetime of the people who were actually there. 40 years is, you know, I mean, people did die earlier back then, but some people did live a really, really live a long time. I mean, John was over there. There's an example. So Mark was about here. Paul died in the early 60s, so, so he's in here. So Paul had written everything before the first gospel. So anything that comes from Paul is going to predate all of the gospels. So this is one of the reasons why we're focusing more on the letters of Paul and things that come before that, rather than the Gospels, because we can date them earlier. Um, I need to make a note here, the uncontested letters of Paul. As I said, most New Testament scholars are very, very skeptical. Um, There are 13 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament. Only seven of them are considered to be authored by him without a lot of dispute. Um, Real quickly, it's Romans... I'll go slowly so you write it down. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, 
Philippians. First Thessalonians and Philemon. So Romans, first Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, first Thessalonians, and Philemon. So if you're pulling out of one of those, you're, you shouldn't get much argument that it was written by Paul. If you're pulling out of the other ones, now you have another step. So, and I'm trying to save you steps. So we're just going to be using ones from the uncontested letters of Paul. But there's an earlier... There, there's an earlier set of sources that we can go to for that. There are early creeds, things that the Christians would pass along amongst each other. Um, they were written before Paul's letters in a lot of cases, uh, some of them right after the death of Jesus. Things that they would do, uh, such as like, Jesus is Lord. It was a saying that they passed around that uh, established some of the core tenets of Christianity before they had time to produce some of these longer works. Uh, you can find things like uh, the hymn in Philippians 2 about uh, Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a man. That's one of those. Um, there's some things early in Romans, um, for example. Tonight, what I want to point out is an early creed in 1 Corinthians 15 that's going to be especially important. Because we can date that with great confidence even from secular scholars, to about here. Even people who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that the New Testament is inspired by God will say that this creed was certainly written within six months to two years after the death of Jesus. So if people say, well, there's legendary development, not in six to 24 months there wasn't. That's really, really quick. Compared with the Gospel of John over there versus what you have right here, that's really, really fast. So could we put 1 Corinthians 15 up here? Uh, 3 through 7, please. Is it on the other page? Okay, that's fine. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So, another thing that we should also take away from this well, there's, there's a lot of things we should take away from this. First, in the uh, first few verses, I received a, what I uh, delivered to you as the first importance, what I also received. Four things. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, buried, raised, appearances. These four things are the exact four things that you find in the Gospels in that order. Death, burial, resurrection, appearances. The Gospels modeled their pattern of events off this, not the other way around. So if you need help supporting the Gospels, you can point out something like an early creed. Second, we know where Paul got this. Uh, Paul gives the story of what happened to him post-conversion in Galatians 1 and 2. And what we find is that he got this directly from Peter, also known as Cephas, and James. James, Jesus' brother, not James, the brother of John. Interestingly enough, there are only two people mentioned by name in, in this creed. One is Cephas, Peter, and in verse 7, James is mentioned as well. So if Paul got this creed from Peter and James, and it records the appearances to Peter and James, you now have eyewitness testimony six months to two years after the death of Jesus saying, we saw him rise from the dead. So there is actually very, very good reason to think that these appearances did happen, or at least they claim that they happened, for example. So these are some of the basic ideas that we use on sources. We use mostly what I'm creeds. Specifically, I'm, I'm just going to stay with 1 Corinthians 15 to make it simpler, as well as the uncontested letters of Paul, like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Um, so I want to pause for a moment and, and ask, are there questions on the sources that we've been talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Uh, one of the ones that uh, is most often pointed to is the description uh, about early Christianity by Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian, um, extremely well-respected among scholars uh, of Roman history. Um, Tacitus said that early Christianity got began after there was an outbreak or there's an outbreak of this after the crucifixion of their leader, Crestus, an alternate spelling of Christ, um, and that it's broken out now in Rome. Um, and then he says some other negative things about it. Um, so basically just say, okay, their leader was crucified and identifies the leader as Christ, and that's about all you get. So it doesn't really add much. Um, there's a passage in Josephus uh, that's especially famous, but it's likely been altered by a Christian later on down the road. So you have to um, redact it. You have to edit it to figure out what was added by a Christian to figure out what it actually said. And if you, if you do that, it basically says, okay, there was, there was a, a wise man that many people thought he did a lot of amazing works. Um, some people thought that he was a Messiah and then he was crucified. Um, and his followers still believe in him today. And that's it's basically like that. So it's nothing, it's not more than you find in the Gospels, it's less. Um, so, like that. You said something about modern scholars mm-hmm. supporting the idea that it was first Corinthians 15 is like the early Christians. Mm-hmm. Like, what are those? What are those? Oh, one very good example is Bart Ehrman. Does anybody know the name? Bart Ehrman's is. Bart Ehrman is like the Richard Dawkins of New Testament scholarship. Uh, He basically spends most of his time trying to destroy it. Um, He describes himself as an agnostic with atheistic leanings and repeatedly talks about how he started in in conservative Christianity and then through his intellectual pursuits, he left it for um, something better. Nothing. Um, E-H-R-M-A-N. I would highly suggest not reading his works. The the problem with Ehrman is that when you when you read a book like Misquoting Jesus, ninety um, percent of the facts in that book are right, but the way he presents them, he presents them as if they're a problem, and like, oh, scholars have recognized this. This completely destroys a Christian faith, which is a lie. Um, every, everybody knows this. He, he he presents truth and twists it to make it look like it's wrong. So unless you know how to sort that out. I wouldn't start with Ehrman. Um, but for, for all the time that he, he debates on people with people that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he said we, we know with confidence that in the first two years Jesus rose from that, um, that this creed was written. So if he could take that apart, he would, but he can't. Um, I mean, this, that, that creed is like pure gold when you're trying to look into the question of of uh, Jesus' resurrection. Everybody goes there and you have to deal with it whether you believe it or not. Of found and written are different things. There have been uh, lots of copies of First Corinthians found. But the question of how many... I think the earliest dating we have of... Uh, New Testament manuscripts, uh, you've got stuff from about 125 A.D. There are some things right now that are currently being investigated that might be earlier than that, but the jury's still out. Um, Most things have not been found sooner than that. What you have is a, um, in New New Testament textual criticism, uh, trying to figure out what the actual Greek of the New Testament is, is a whole bunch of scholars with nothing better to do and very boring lives who analyze all of the thousands of manuscripts that we found, and they basically put them in sort of, think of like a family tree. This one was copied by this one was copied by this one, and they trace which one came from where, who were the copyists who were the, of, of each one, and they can get different strands. Okay, this, this guy was doing this one, and he did really lousy work, so we can't really trust these. As much. This guy did really good work. So even though it might be a little bit older, we can probably trust that whatever he did came from here. And they put all this stuff together into the Greek New Testament. And by and large, um, it might be surprising to most people, by and large, 
it's not really disputed among scholars today. If you're arguing against the accuracy of the Bible, um, people on the Internet go after the, the text. People who have PhDs and publish in journals don't go after the text anymore because it's really, really solid. And somebody like Ehrman versus a very conservative scholar like Dan Wallace only disagree in about 50 places out of the 138,000 plus words in the New Testament. So there's very, very little disagreement um, as far as what the Greek text is. Right, because there's because there's so many. Not not to say all of them are good. Many of them are quite bad, but because you can trace what happened and have an idea of what was original, there's a pretty good idea of what the original Greek text says. The, the question now is just translating it. But most translate. There's a lot of very very good translations, so you're not you're not missing much. Yes. Yes, you. Here's something that, that, that is really interesting that most um, most people don't, and this will be the last one, then I'll have to go on because I'm talking too long. Um, the written word wasn't really valued in early Christianity um, for a number of reasons. One, 90% of people were illiterate. What good is it if you can't, if you can't read? Um, another is, well, if John was still writing in 95 AD, that means he was still alive. Now, which are you going to trust more? Are you going to trust some document that you, that you have that says it was written by John? Or if John's like speaking you know, down the street, are you, are you going to go want to hear? John actually knew Jesus. Um, and even into the second century, it's like his disciples, like Polycarp. Well, Polycarp was discipled by John who knew Jesus. I'm going to listen to Polycarp more than I do this document. And even more than that, you can ask a person questions. You can't ask a piece of paper questions. It's just there. Um, so we're kind of stuck with that today because that's all we have. But if you had the opportunity to ask people questions, that was better. Um, besides all the formal ways of passing down oral tradition. Um, so it wasn't until I think probably into the third century that the written documents started being trusted more than the oral tradition. Um, so even when the Gospels were written, the oral sources were trusted more. Okay, yes. So when you say, like, when you said Mark is at 40 years, is that, mm-hmm. like, how long it took for him to write it, or when he started it, or when it finished, or when he started writing it? Like, That's when the guess is when he actually put pen to paper or got somebody to put pen to paper and write it down. Very, very possibly it was communicated orally prior to that, and that it was only then that he wrote it down. Because, um, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The delivering and the receiving, those are technical terms for the delivering and the passing on of oral tradition. It was actually a technical thing. When most people couldn't read or write, you had to have ways of passing on information because everybody forgot it. It's gone. It was only once the Jewish war started that these lines of passing on oral tradition got interrupted, and you couldn't really continue to pass on oral tradition in the same concrete way that you could prior to that so once that happened I think you started seeing a lot more things being written down after that uh, whereas before it was mostly letters so let's go on otherwise we're going to run out of time and I don't want to do that Um, facts what facts can we get out of these sources I I want to present three facts that that are very 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 basic and don't seem to be outlandish, and most people shouldn't really have an issue with them. But they come out of the early sources, and they, um, I think, will help make a case that Jesus rose from the dead. The first one is that Jesus died due to crucifixion. And while that seems like a really odd fact to show that somebody rose from the dead, you kind of need it. Because if he didn't die, then he couldn't rise from the dead. Right? So he had to die. And if In theory, it's not hard to show that someone rose from the dead. All you need is a sequence of three events. They were alive, and they were dead, and then they were alive again. 
conceptually it's easy, but it's really, really hard to have evidence for all of those three things in order because you actually need to have a resurrection to do that. But alive, dead, alive really isn't that hard to show. So you need the dead part. So he died due to crucifixion, which is largely uncontested by most people today unless you're a Muslim because the Quran says that Jesus just appeared to die, so they're theologically committed to arguing with that. Um, the second one is that the disciples believe that Jesus appeared to them after his death. Notice what I'm saying here. The disciples believed that Jesus appeared to him after his death. Not that he actually appeared, because if you could somehow prove that he actually appeared, you don't need any other facts, because you've got a res- resurrection there and you're done. All you need to show is that they believed it. So, believing it. In this, for example, you have the appearances to Cephas, uh, then to the twelve, referring to the, the body of twelve believers, and then you have the 500 witnesses, and then you have James. Um, and then in verse 8, Paul tacks on his own one. It's not part of the creed, but he says, in last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Um, 1 Corinthians was written in about 53 to 54 A.D. This creed comes from before that. It's just being quoted here. So these 500 witnesses have been around for more than 20 years. Paul says most of them are still alive. So you have over 500, you have 500 people who have been around, and you can ask them questions for more than 20 years. So there are plenty of people who are claiming that they saw him not to mention the 12. The 12 especially because they suffered and died for their beliefs. Later historians will show that, which can be useful to bring them in. You can also look at um, the book of Acts, for example. James was martyred. And even if you got no further than the book of Acts, the fact that other disciples kept preaching in the face of James's martyrdom shows that even in the midst, even in the face of persecution and death, they, can, they carried on. I don't know about you, but if I were making up a story and it were a lie, I would really think twice about carrying on preaching if I might lose my life over it. Finally, the last fact we're going to look at is that the church persecutor Paul converted. Um, Paul talks about his conversion in many places, um, Corinthians and Galatians and, and, and other places as well. But he was not part of the 12, and we'll see when we get into the hypothesis section how that will make a difference. So this is, a, this is a short one for us to go over, we'll, but we will be coming back to these in just a second. So before we move on to the last section, any questions on the facts? One, two, or three. Yes. Because women were not considered credible witnesses. Um, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. So you see them in the Gospels, which is actually evidence for the Gospels being good sources because you wouldn't include something that's going to hurt your case unless it it really happened. So I didn't list the empty tomb as one of the facts because you have to go to the Gospels for that, and I was trying to avoid the Gospels. But in the defense that the tomb was actually empty, the fact that the women are recorded as the first witnesses is a very, very strong piece of evidence that it really did happen. It's sort of like uh, David sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. Well, it's not really, you know, the most flattering of stories. You wouldn't put it in there unless it happened. Same thing. Yes. The sermons? I find Acts a little easier to get away with than the Gospels just because there's only one of them. So there's not the contradiction thing. And Luke was a very, very good historian. It's not that I don't use the Gospels. It's just a question of do you want to go there? Um, if you're comfortable defending the – immediately add the conversion of James um, and I would add the empty tomb. Uh, and there's some other ones you can do as well, but um, it's just a question of whether you okay, want to do that. Acts doesn't have those same problems. Not as much. Okay. Um, the Gospels are a little worse. Acts is a little better, but usually they get lumped in. You either do it or don't. Okay. Um, 
But you're hearing me use those things, but it's not to support the main facts as much. It's, they're, they're like periphery details. Other questions? The third one was church persecutor Paul converted. Okay, so in this last section, this is audience participation time. We're going to look at some different hypotheses for what happened during this Easter time that what, what could have happened besides Jesus actually rising from the dead? What are some other ideas? And we're going to take five of them that you guys suggest, and then we're going to go over them. So who's got one? Disciples stole the body. Yes, that's two. We've got three more. Hallucinations. So hallucinations, I'm going to say slash visions. I want to cover that at the same point. It's mostly going to be hallucinations, but I need to point out the difference. Wrong tune. Wrong tune. Actually, it's your job. I'm going to flip this around and make you guys answer it. <laughs> Number five. We've got one more left. Legend. All right. So, disciples stole the body. We're the first one. Okay, so we're going to work through each one of the facts one by one. First fact was Jesus died due to crucifixion. Does the disciples stealing the body explain that first fact? Yes, because there has to be a body for them to steal it, right? Okay, good. What about the second fact? The disciples believe Jesus appeared to them after his death. Right. If they stole the body, they'd kind of know that it's a lie. So if they knew it's a lie, why would they continue preaching in the face of suffering and death? It doesn't make any sense. So it really doesn't explain the second fact. What about the third one? Conversion of Paul. Would the disciples stealing the body convince Paul? Well, we're, only if you go to Acts can we know that it was his experience. All we have is a bare fact that Paul said he uh, had, an, had an appearance. I agree it doesn't explain that, but... Very true, but it's interesting that he started out killing these people and then he became one. The, it, it brings the question up, why would he do that? Why would he switch? It could just be that he was a crazy person, but that's sort of an... If you just go with that, then you have to ask the question, okay, well, why did this crazy person then live the life that Paul lived with all the missionary journeys, with all the sufferings that he went through and so forth? Um, what if he just had a weird brain that worked with him? Another thing that happens, too, is if you, if you start using separate explanations for each of them, say, okay, well, Paul was, disciples stole the body, and then the disciples, well, it explains the one but not the other. You start adding, okay, this one explains this fact, and this one explains this fact, and then this one explains this fact. When you start piling theory on top of theory on top of theory, it becomes what's called ad hoc, which means it sounds made up. So it's like, okay, then there was the ascension, so there was a helicopter, and that moved, and you start... The, the more and more 
theories it takes to explain a few facts, the more likely it is that it's not going to work. Um, so you can sink a ship with one really big hole, or you can have a lot of little ones. And if you have a lot of little ones, the function is, uh, is the same. It's still going to put a bunch of water in the boat. So if you start getting too many theories, then usually it ends up just getting thrown out because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So the disciples stealing the body, I would argue that it does not, would not have convinced Paul. He was preaching and persecuting, preaching against and persecuting the church for years after the resurrection. Why all of a sudden would he just change? I mean, if, if he's, he probably converted maybe 32 or 33 AD. If, why would he work against the church for two or three years and all of a sudden switch? Why wouldn't he do that back at the beginning if the disciples stealing the body would have convinced him? Second theory, Jesus just appeared to die. What about this? Does this explain the death by crucifixion, that he appeared to die? Yeah, the Romans were experts in killing people. It's, it's very unlikely that Jesus survived the crucifixion. Um, let me give another, another point that, that's worth bringing up. Most people are not aware of. There is only one person in ancient history known to have survived crucifixion. Um, it was a friend of the Jewish historian Josephus. He, three of his friends were crucified. And he was a Jewish general, and he had, when he got defeated, then he switched and started working for the Romans. So he went and begged the general Titus, later to be Emperor Titus, will you please save my friends? Titus agreed. And Joseph, while they were still alive, and gave them excellent medical treatment. And the treatment that a Roman general was likely to have available, his doctors were going to be pretty good. That's the best you're going to get in the ancient world. Two out of the three still died, even being taken down alive. It's very, very unlikely that anybody could have survived crucifixion, especially if they thought he was dead. Um, but for the sake of argument, let's just go ahead and grant that let's let's say that he could have i don't i don't buy that but let's say that he could have survived crucifixion what about the other two points does it explain the disciples believing jesus appeared to them That's exactly right. How many of you have seen the Passion? Yeah. Remember how Jesus looked? That's probably about right. So in that state, he gets laid in the tomb. Um, and suppose that he didn't die of exposure over the couple of days that he was in the tomb. So he would have rolled away the stone, beat up the guards, walked on his nail-pierced feet over to see the disciples, and said, I'm the risen Lord of life. And they would have said, wow, I want a resurrection body just like that one. It's not very likely he would have convinced the disciples. What about Paul? About the same as the disciples. So, swoon theory, Jesus just appeared to die, doesn't go so well. Hallucinations and visions. This is far and away the most common uh, explanation of the of the facts of the ideas of what happened to Jesus after he supposedly died and rose from, from the dead. Let me separate these out. Hallucinations and visions are different things, um, at least in their technical definition. A hallucination is something that occurs in your own mind. It's very much like a dream. Um, a vision, on the other hand, as they would be used in literature like this, is for something that was actually there. Um, 
For example, if I say that I see a figure over, you know, sitting on that bench, if it were a vision, there would be something there, actually there. Like you might see it or whatever. There would actually be something there. If it were a hallucination, it would just be in my own mind. There really would be no thing there, no external referent. So most people don't go with visions because that means that Jesus actually did somehow manage to appear to people after he was dead, and now you've got supernatural, so people leave that alone. But I want you to understand the difference between the two. Hallucinations, on the other hand, is, where, is something that happens in your own mind. So would hallucinations account for Jesus' death on the cross? I'm seeing some yeses and some noes. What do y'all think? He could have actually died, and then then they had hallucinations that they saw him. So he did, since they were seeing hallucinations and not the real person, Jesus could have died. So it explains the first one. What about the disciples believing that Jesus appeared to them? Does that make sense? Does Right, because it occurs in your own mind. There's a lot of problems with hallucinations just on their own, but there are zero cases in medical literature of hallucinations happening to a group of people. Now, there are suggestive things where people with the power of suggestion can say that it, it happened, but that's a very different thing than actually saying a hallucination. That's like us all deciding that... Okay, it's March, it's kind of gloomy outside, I really don't like this. I would much rather be on vacation in Hawaii now. So what we're going to do is we're all going to go home tonight, and we're going to have a dream that we're in Hawaii together, and we're going to have a vacation there for free. So I'm going to go dream that, and you are all going to go dream the same thing. Come share with me, and we're going to go have a beach vacation tonight. That makes just as much sense as group hallucinations, because if this is chemicals in your brain working... You can't share that with somebody. Right? You can tell them about it, but you can't actually experience that with another person. Okay, so I'm taking massive quantities of drugs, and I have hallucinations. Are you going to see them? Wouldn't all see the same thing. So if you appeared to 500 people at the same time, are they all going to see the same thing? And as it sounds like, first he appeared. Uh, Cephas. I was going to say two seconds. Appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than five hundred at one time, then to James, and last to uh, Paul. You see more examples of this in Gospels and Acts, but even here, that's several different appearances. It's not just at one time. It's to individuals. It's to groups of people. It's with this group. It's with other groups. Sometimes this person's included. Sometimes all these people are included. In one case, perhaps you could say, well, a very weird thing happens. But doing this multiple times over the period of time seems less and less likely, and you're starting to get less and less probability as this happening. You could, if you're going with the empty tomb. No, I'm saying if, if, if all these guys are saying Jesus rose from the dead and they're hallucinating, couldn't the Jewish authorities have just said, no, he's still here? Right, which is, which is one, another of the big arguments for the, for the empty tomb as well. It's like, because it's in Jerusalem, then you just go find it. Okay. So, and then they drag his body through the streets, Christianity's done, and nobody had ever gotten going. Um, it would have been really easy. Wouldn't have made it a week. Uh, what about the um, appearances to Paul, or the uh, conversion of Paul? Would hallucinations explain that? Well, the another thing about hallucinations is the people who supposedly experience them don't fit the type of the ones who normally do. The, the single most common category, um, at least in recorded cases today, of people who experience hallucinations are women over 60 
who have just recently lost their spouse, whom they loved quite a bit. If they had a bad marriage, no. If they had a good marriage, yes. Um, and they're bereaving their loss of the loved one. Hallucinations can come in a variety of different uh, modes. Uh, you can have an auditory hallucination where you hear something. You can have a visual hallucination where you see something. There can be a tactile one um, and so forth. Rarely do hallucinations occur in multiple modes at the same time. So you might see something, but you're not going to see and hear something. Or you, you might hear something, but you're not going to see and hear and feel something. So you're not going to be able to touch necessarily the thing. You might get a, a feeling that somebody's there, a sense of presence, but you won't see it. So it's usually that group of people, which doesn't fit any of the people here who are all young men. Um, and the disciples may have been bereaving the loss of their teacher, but Paul wasn't. Um, and they're seeing and feeling and so forth Jesus in multiple modes at the same time, which doesn't fit what normally happens. So just on their own, these hallucinations don't fit what normally happens, besides the group hallucination thing, which has never there's never been a recorded instance of that ever happening. And there's still lots of drugs today, and people take those all the time. And, and if that were causing hallucinations, there would be at least one, I think, uh, record of that happening. So while this one is the most common hypothesis today, uh, hallucinations explains his death, but that's it. And that doesn't really get you far because lots of people have died. What about the wrong tomb? They went to the wrong place. So if you're if you're going with with the uh, the empty tomb theory, I mean the Jewish the Jewish leadership was very motivated. They to to end this, they would have found out where the tomb was presumably. Um, but I mean, if we say the wrong tomb, well actually the empty tomb wasn't one of our facts. We can say okay, fine, wrong tomb. That wasn't one of the the facts. We can still prove it without it. So I'll grant it and and move on. It's a possibility. You don't have to go with that, but it's a possibility. Well, there weren't many places the size of them. Probably not that many places to actually bury a person. They probably wasn't going to be very far away. Um, now, common criminals would have been just dumped in a mass grave or something like that. But if you go with the gospel account that he was actually put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, Joseph, as a member of the Sanhedrin, would have had a very well-known place. It would have been a family tomb. People would have known who and where. But still, I mean, honestly, we're only talking about a few days afterwards. Um, again, this is getting the other tomb, but we're only talking about a few days it's not that hard to go back and find out what happened. Um, the, the Jewish leadership obviously knew where it was. They put guards there and so forth. So it seems highly unlikely also they wouldn't have looked in the tomb to see if his body was there before they put the stone. I mean, so it, it's kind of hard in, in, a, in a not large area. I mean, Jerusalem was bigger than most, but. It wasn't that big a place. It wasn't that long of time away that they couldn't have figured out it if they really wanted to. Last, uh, last question, or a hypothesis, legend. But of all, all this stuff about Jesus was just a legend. It was all made up. What do you all think? I think the legend is not so much an attack on the facts as it is on the sources. So what it is is trying to say, well, these sources are worthless, and we don't need to be listening to them. Um, there, there are you, – when you're saying legend here, given, given the, the timeline of something like this, the time frame, part of the reason why we're not going with something like, well, we're just going to prove it out of the Gospel of John – 
which comes 65 years later, which honestly in ancient history, that's still really good. Um, there are a lot of things that you'd find in history textbooks that are much less well attested than 65 years after. So honestly, that's not bad. That's quite good. But part of why we're not using John, part of why we're not using um, the other Gospels or the uncontested letters of Paul, which still represent early thought in Christianity, why we're bothering to go through all of this is to avoid this question. You're not going to get a legend in 6 to 24 months. That's too, t- too far. Uh, that's, I mean, that's too close for legendary development to um, to wipe out the core facts of, of history. Um, besides that, um, related to this, you ha- you also have the idea that Jesus never existed. But while it's, again, popular on the Internet, there are precisely, I think, four or maybe five people who have PhDs in relevant fields who actually think that. Um and I mentioned Ehrman earlier. He actually wrote an entire book, Did Jesus Exist?, countering the view that Jesus did not exist, saying that's dumb. So when, when he's on that side, when he argues, spends all of his time arguing against Christianity, he's like, no, Jesus really did exist. I'm, I'll just sit back and let Bart take care of it. Um, I'll just defer to him. He just believed that he existed, but he didn't really Right. Most... Um, most scholars will believe in something uh, called the historical Jesus, and there's been three quests for the historical Jesus, um, reading and writing, not like Indiana Jones. And basically it's an idea to find out, not believing all this miracle and resurrection stuff, who was the man. And basically you come to, okay, he was a Jewish rabbi. Um, he had a reputation, not that he did it, he had a reputation of a faith healer, miracle worker, and that his disciples believe, you know, that he raised from the dead uh, after his crucifixion. So it's like that, just without the belief in it, but it's still many of the very same facts. So there's almost nobody uh, who does work in biblical studies or, or similar fields who thinks that he didn't rise from the dead. So the last one that we haven't talked about is the actual resurrection. But I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, if, if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, well, he was dead. So it explains that one pretty well, because you have to be dead first. And then it would be really, really easy to have some appearances if he actually rose from the dead. Um, and he's in, in a new glorified state. It would be really easy for him to appear. And it would not be surprising in the slightest to have people like Paul switch their point of view. Um, the one that I would have wanted to be around to see was James his um, slightly younger brother, uh, has spent his, you know, Jesus' ministry disbelieving Jesus and, you know, just thought he was a nut. And then Jesus dies and rises from the dead. He comes back to see James like, what's up, bro? Yeah. So that would have been an interesting, I I would love to be on a fly on the wall on that one. But um, it's very, very understandable to have some conversions if somebody actually did rise from the dead. So we have four minutes left. Any final questions before we wrap up? Yes. I've seen mostly none of those. I've seen The Passion. Um, I watched it once when it came um, because it's not one you just sit down with a bowl of popcorn. You need to be ready for it. Um, I thought it was a pretty good good description of how it probably happened. I uh, I mean, there's certain things that I disagreed with a little bit here and there. Uh, but I think something like that is a really good way of getting at the heart of the issue of what, what actually happened. Because, I mean, I've, I've been talking about scholars and facts and sources and whatever, and it's really, really dry. Um, it's good to know, and it's helpful for people who struggle with those issues, but it's all up here. Um, something like that helps to reach people here, and that's, and that's what you can also do by uh, interacting with people on a personal level. Uh, neither one, either the heart or the head, can solve all of the problems. You need both. So I think used in combination, they can both be very effective. Yes?
Christianity in general or the, or the resurrection? Um, the most common is hallucinations. Um, yeah. Um, at the scholarly level, that is far and away the most common one. And I don't know why. Well, I, somewhat, because some of these other ones have been tried. You know, the swoon theory was tried in the late 19th century, and it was, it, it was it held up until D.F. Strauss, and then Strauss killed it when he explained what I did about Jesus walking out. It was done. And some of these other ones have sort of held for a long time, but then periodically they keep dropping, and so that's kind of like what you're left with. Um, because scholars have been arguing about this for a long time. The most ridiculous one uh, is that Jesus was an alien. I love that one. I say, perfect, I agree with you. He was not of this world. <laughs> Done. <laughs> yeah. Yep, Jesus has a twin is another one. That's Twin theory has been common. Um, so that, that's another one. We can go through that as well. Yeah, and th- this, is, this is something that nobody has, that, that we haven't even touched on is that, okay, we've provided evidence for why we think it was a resurrection. For example, that was the earliest, that was the, fir- the original claim of the first Christians. Jesus rose from the dead. Um, the disciples stole the body has historical claim as well because that was a claim of the Jewish leadership. Okay, both of those are historical. Everything else has been made up after the fact. This, this was not claimed originally. So we're reading back into something, something that wasn't there. So really those two hypotheses, disciples stealing the body and that he actually rose, are the ones that have the most historical merit. Everything else is after the fact. Last one. Yes and no, except that we weren't using the Bible as the Bible. Um, the, the Bible Bible actually just refers to the way that the thing was put together. Instead of being on a scroll, they, they put them up like this and then they sewed it together or whatever. So to turn, that just refers to how the thing is bound. But all of these were individual documents. Right. So, Biased. But why would any author take the time to write something unless he had a stake in it? There is no, um, there is no work that is unbiased. Um, everybody has a bias. It's, it's not a matter of finding an unbiased source. It's a matter of understanding what their bias is and then dealing with it. So that's really how scholars deal with that. And not just biblical scholars, I mean, Roman historians. Um, People like to discredit the, the stuff in the Bible because they say, well, there's miracles. Tacitus has miracles. But, I mean, woe be to the Roman historian who throws out Tacitus because he's got a couple of miracles in there. They just they work around it. Um, and what I've been doing is not accepting things like miracles and stuff in there. I'm just treating these as regular old ancient sources. Um, right. Um Right, so, and that's the key point. I'm not saying that Jesus actually appeared to them. Um, there, there are plenty of people who die for a lie, but you don't die for something that you know is a lie. It's very, very, it's very rare. Liars make poor martyrs. Um, so that's why the fact was worded, the second one particularly, the disciples believed that Jesus appeared to them, not that he actually did. So it's a matter of trying to separate out the bias as much as you can. And, and to your first question, some people are, are not going to listen no matter what, and that, that's on both sides, whether you're Christian or not. Um, what, I've tried to do, what I'm trying to do with this is adopt not an overly accepting point of view or an overly skeptical point of view. Um, 
I'm doing some, I'm using a method that is referred to as methodological neutrality. We're just going to lay out what's there and do our best to try to make sense of it without assuming that miracles happen or miracles don't happen, for example, that there is a God or that there's not a God. What seems to have happened, and then we sort it out afterwards, not going in with, with a God or not. I, it's time. Um, but I... For the resurrection? Yes. Most of the sources come, the best ones come from the works that are collected into the New Testament. But remember, they weren't collected as the New Testament until the 4th century. So they were independent documents for close to 300 years. There, there is, and, and what he's saying is, is correct. But I do, I do just want to make one point before I step off. Like, I'm doing a PhD in New Testament. This is what scholars do. They, they, the New Testament documents are treated as documents like everything else. Just because people believe in them doesn't invalidate people from looking into them in a, in a neutral manner as best they can. It's done all the time by people who do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, whether they're studying the resurrection or whether they're studying anything else. It's that's just what they do. Good. Maybe you can hang around. Yeah, I'll be I'll be around.